Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. In each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Our guest today is Dave Jacobson with JNZ Strategies. Based in Los Angeles, Dave is one of the leading Democratic political consultants in the country. He's working on some of the most important races anywhere this cycle, and he joins us to discuss the current state of the battle for the U.S. House, the Senate, and of course, the presidency. Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. It is great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, always love to talk shop, uh, particularly with another Californian. Um, so yeah, a little bit about JNZ Strategies. I'm one of the co-founders, along with my partner, Max Silber. Um, we're based in California, um, but we do work all over the country, uh, primarily uh, you know, political media, so television and digital media. Uh, we do a lot of local, state, federal races, and then issue advocacy for more like progressive organizations like environmental groups or labor unions. Um, I'd say the bulk of our campaign work is, you know, uh, Colorado, uh, New Mexico, California, Arizona, um, but we do stuff all over from Virginia to New York. Um, you know, we've uh, kind of uh, dipped our toes into a bunch of different states uh, and we love to do the work that we do. So um, it's all exciting, especially as we gear up for the fall. Great. Well, I'm so glad to have you on today because today's today's primary day in a few states, obviously, and we definitely want to get into what's going on with some of these progressive challengers to some more establishment party candidates. But also, it's it's about that time where the polls are starting to have a little more meaning than they did a few months ago. And there's some fascinating things going on in the House, the Senate races, uh, but certainly the presidential race as well. So we're going to do a little bit of a whirlwind today. We're going to talk about the House, and we're going to talk about um, a bunch of these key competitive Senate races, and then try to leave as much time as we can for the presidential race, which I know is top of the mind for everybody. And I can't think of anyone better suited to cover all this ground than you, Dave, given the breadth of the races that you work on. So looking forward to hearing your insight. I appreciate it. You give me too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at all. Well, let's let's start with the House. And why don't we talk about here in California, these this Orange County seats in particular, this is obviously uh, a huge development over the last few years where Orange County, the ones un unthinkably, um, uh, to, unthinkable that it would switch to Democratic hands, and it has now. Do you expect that we can continue that trend in, these, in this upcoming election, or do you think that that's going to return to some sense of more historic norms? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, if you look at the overall trajectory of just pure voter registration in Orange County, just this last year, Orange County as a whole surpassed uh, Democratic registration and outpaced Republican registration. So I think that trend is going to continue. Um, I feel really good about the Orange County House races. Frankly, all of all, I feel really good about all the California seven races, um, but particularly in Orange County, where you're just seeing uh, sort of that continued enthusiasm and momentum behind Democrats, seeing that translated directly into uh, their fundraising and uh, obviously the support that they continue to generate. But, you know, Republicans nonetheless are going to put up uh, competitive campaigns. I mean, you've got a substantial number of API candidates in Orange County who are running in some of these races. Um, and so, and, and these, these Democrats are now the incumbents. They're no longer the change makers, the anti-politicians, right? They're in Washington. And so they've got to run the record. Um, and, you know, they're, they've got to, you know, sort of cement a message in a brand that, uh, you know, the, the, the work that they're doing is, uh, is improving people's quality of life. Um, but I, I think Democrats obviously have a great message. 
uh, and list of accomplishments to campaign on. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of gridlock in Washington. So, you know, some stuff has gotten done. Other stuff is uh, sort of put to the side just because a lot of the House bills have died in the Senate, frankly, because of Mitch McConnell. But that being said, Democrats have nonetheless advanced a number of their policy objectives that they campaigned on in 18. So they need to communicate that to the electorate um, to make sure that voters understand what they're trying to uh, put forward. And I feel pretty confident. I mean, if you look at um, obviously the fundraising figures are the, you know, the, the best sort of assessment of uh, momentum behind a candidate at this point, it's a little early, obviously, um, for campaigns to release any polling. Um, but I feel pretty good about it. Um, the other thing that's fascinating in, in Orange County is that, you know, you've got these like top of the ticket house races, Brian, where you've got a bunch of these Democrats, Katie Porter, Harley Ruda, who happens to be a client of ours, um, Gil Cisneros, among others. Um, and then you've got, and, you know, the Orange County Board of Supervisors is almost all Republicans, five board members, there's only one Democrat. Um, so there's a big supervisor race that we're actually involved in. Uh, where uh, you've got a Democrat in the plus 20 Democratic seat running against an, a Republican incumbent, Andrew Doe versus Sergio Contreras. Uh, that, uh, you know, that'll be fascinating to see sort of how the, the continued momentum from these House races trickle that, trickles down ballot uh, to impact local races, both at the county and the local uh, level. So that'll be interesting to see. And you've alluded to this with the registration numbers point, but is it your view that the county itself is actually becoming more democratic as opposed to we won these house seats and now we have to hold on to these house seats? You, you view this as a longer term trend in Orange County with sustained democratic momentum, is that fair? I think that's right. I mean, it, like if you just think about like basic issues like climate change, right? Like if you're like a moderate, uh, you know, perhaps fiscal conservative, but socially liberal person who owns beachfront property in Newport Beach, you don't want oil rigs off the coast and you don't want smog polluting your air so that your children get asthma, right? So like these perhaps, you know, historic, uh, you know, Reagan Democrats or George Bush or, or John McCain Republicans have been trending more towards the Democrats because Democrats are aligned with a lot of these other issues that they care about, equality, uh, you know, gay, gay marriage, um, among other issues. I just think a lot of those sort of historic Republicans, they're, they're not Trump Republicans, right? And so uh, many of them just held their nose and went with the Democrat because Democrats, broadly speaking, maybe they don't like raising taxes on, you know, um, or some of the other issues perhaps, but uh, on the broader sort of social issues, they're much more aligned with Democrats in that party. So I think that's where you're going to continue to see that trend in the years ahead. Yeah, we had Professor Jim Newton on the show a few weeks ago, and, and he, like you, stressed the climate change issue on the politics in, in some of these, you know, Reagan, Trump, uh, Republican registrations in the past in California and how much climate change has really tilted some of those Republicans to the Democrats. And I, I think what's interesting about that is you know, it can be hard in modern times to find real victories for the climate change movement, clearly legislatively, and uh, we've been stunted at the federal level. But, but this is actually a really promising long-term trend to the extent that we're seeing Republicans lose their seats in part because of their position on climate change. That, that certainly bodes well for the overall political momentum going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's a jobs message. It's a clean air, clean water message. And I think just broadly speaking, people who live in coastal communities in California and also 
you know, inland too, where you've got air pollution, for example, like people get it, right? And I think the science, uh, there's no debating the science, like it's happening, it's real. And so I think like informed people who understand you know, basic science and facts uh, are, are trending and in, in siding with Democrats increasingly, particularly in Orange County. So it's a top of line issue there for sure. Great. Well, let's scoot all the way across the country, talk about New York. There's a really interesting race going on today, actually. We're, we're recording on Tuesday for Elliot Engel's seat. Talk about what's going on there, if you would. It's fascinating. I mean, this is kind of like, uh, you know, another sort of um, insurgent progressive Democrat running against the more established long-term uh, Washington congressperson. Um, we saw this last cycle with AOC's sort of unconventional campaign that, um, you know, uh, was groundbreaking and earth shattering politically. Um, and you're seeing that now, you've got Elliot Engel, who's a longtime Congress member from New York 16, uh, who's running against an educator, Jamal Brown, who sort of consolidated a lot of the progressive wing of the party, the Working Families Party. You know, you've got the Justice Democrats. Um, I think actually, speaking of Orange County, Katie Porter uh, recently, I believe, endorsed Jamal Bra uh, Bowman. Um, you know, the Bernie Sanders of the world. And, uh, you know, you're seeing real momentum uh, behind that campaign. Obviously, there's been tremendous money being spent on both sides, particularly in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, Elliot Ingalls obviously, uh, you know, gotten sort of more of that traditional money with Jamal uh, sort of uh, attracting more of that leftist sort of progressive grassroots money. But um, I'd argue it's probably the most competitive race of all the primaries across the country. I and mean, maybe it's tied with the Amy McGrath uh, uh, race in uh, Kentucky against uh, Charles Booker. But um, yeah, I mean, that is definitely a race to watch tonight. And I think this is indicative of sort of a larger movement where in these deep blue seats, you know, you're seeing progressives challenge these more sort of established, uh, more moderate uh, Democrats. Uh, not that Elliot Engel is, is, is a, is a tremendously moderate, but uh, Jamal Bowman is definitely a more progressive candidate, uh, a local candidate. And, you know, I think at a time when people um, are sort of disheartened with the gridlock in Washington, uh, and that's not the fault of Democrats, it's the fault of Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump at the end of the day, they're the ones halting progress. Um, but I think people, uh, you know, uh, are using these elections as a vehicle to voice their frustration against the quote establishment. Uh, and this is sort of the latest in the sequence of races that we're seeing over the last couple of years where you have these progressive insurgents camp campaigns um, take on the old guard. Um, and frankly, as a political junkie and spectator, it's fun to watch. Um, you know, you want to make sure, uh, frankly, that if you're an incumbent, you're doing everything in your power to reflect the views and the values of the people you represent and having a competitive race so that you can go out there and, and forces you to, to engage with the community, engage with people who you represent, I think is a good thing for democracy. Um, if, and if people believe that you're reflecting their values, they'll vote for you, right? Um, at the end of the day. And so uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, I, you know, polling indicates that it's, it's plausible that the Bowman wins this thing. I mean, there's polling showing him leading a consistent link out the last couple of weeks. Um, I think it's largely going to be a function of like what happens with turnout. And I think we're just, you know, Brian, we're living in this sort of unconventional dynamic now with COVID. Um, so it's hard to sort of project who exactly is going to turn out uh, given the circumstances. Absolutely. I think, you know, we've talked to a few pollsters recently and I was pressing them on what your voter turnout model is in the age of COVID. And uh, it's a lot of confusion. So I think we got to keep a close eye on, on these polls. Uh, this will be actually be an interesting test of the polls in some ways coming up to the general election. 
But then in the general, we'll have all kinds of new issues like in California where everyone has a mail-in ballot and how you might model turnout for something like that. But, but let's go back to the point you raised about you know, this, this trend of progressives challenging, and let's focus on House members for the moment. Here's what I have trouble getting my head around. If, if Nancy Pelosi is backing an incumbent House member and her leadership team is, is backing an incumbent House member, is it truly the case that someone thinks that Nancy Pelosi is not progressive enough or, or, or is not doing a great job of holding Trump accountable and, and taking on Republicans? I mean, by all accounts, she is a hero of the, of the not, not just the, the Democratic establishment, but I think progressives everywhere right now. So, so where is that space of, of people somehow thinking that Nancy Pelosi needs to be more progressive, or at least the things that she's pushing for need to be more progressive. Let's be clear. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is an icon for the American people, but particularly, obviously, for Democrats who um, are just huge fans of her across the country. Um, and what she has accomplished on behalf of Democrats and the American people is nothing short of amazing. What I think this fundamentally comes down to is a profound disdain, more broadly speaking, or holistically, if you look at Washington, against incumbents who have been entrenched in Washington for decades. Uh, I think it's a combination of that, but I also think it's a function largely of the, um, the fact that endorsements matter less than they once did. In the digital age, when people have uh, you know, the news at their fingertips on their iPhones, because uh, everyone's online all day, every day, um, people are getting information in a way that they never have before historically. Um, and it's not just a function of getting your, your election information from political TV ads, uh, which I think are very still, still very important and, and direct mail pieces, um, but people do their own research. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think a combination of sort of endorsements mattering less, uh, people having access to more information to learn more about the candidates and a continued sort of disdain for the establishment of Washington itself, not necessarily any one party or the other, uh, just the, the fact that uh, you know people have sort of been entrenched in that Washington world for so long. I think people are salivating for change across America. And I think that's a reflection of why these races have sort of become competitive increasingly over the last couple of cycles. So to summarize kind of where your head's at on the house right now, what what's your concern level that we somehow lose the house at this point? Is that fairly low? It's almost certainly low. I don't see any scenario. I think the generic ballot um, has Democrats up by double digits. Um, so I think, you know, we're definitely going to keep our majority. Um, it's possible we grow our majority. We can potentially pick up a couple seats, maybe lose a couple seats, but I think we're probably going to stay very close to where we are, uh, which I think is a, is a really good sign for Democrats Broadly, I think that the big sort of toss up is the Senate, right? Um, and I know we're going to get into that in a minute. Well, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, it's sure. just some fascinating races and I think, you know, every region of the country here too and some states uh, on the map that I didn't think we'd be talking about in terms of competitive races this late in the cycle. So um, in, no, in no particular order, let's start with Arizona where we've got the Democratic challenger up double digits, it seems like in every poll against Martha McSally. What, what do you make of that race? Yeah, I mean, as and if we think about uh, Brian, the Senate holistically, like you know, we've got we've got to pick up essentially five seats, right? I think, I mean, four if you if you include Doug Jones, and I think that's it's a little bit too early to know sort of what that race is going to look like. Although uh, Alabama, pardon me, historically obviously has been 
enormously difficult for Democrats. So let's be real about that. Um, but we love Doug Jones and we want him to win. Um, but like, you know, we probably have to pick up five seats. And I think Arizona and Colorado are probably at the top of the list. I think, I mean, Mark Kelly is just a, a monster when it comes to fundraising. I mean, he's raised like over $30 million uh, to uh, Martha McSally's raised uh, just under, I think around $19 million. And he's consistently polling ahead. I mean, I think Real Clear Politics has the polling average around 10 points up for Kelly. Uh, even Fox News put out a poll uh, just a couple weeks ago, he was up 13 points. Uh, and so, you know, and candidly, we're, we're actually involved in a super PAC uh, in that race to uh, help, uh, help Kelly win and take down McSally. And, and I mean, she's just like on the record of like voting when she, when she voted to uh, do away with the Affordable Care Act, she also voted to slash a billion dollars in CDC funding. Um, you know, it's just like, you know, healthcare is going to be a big issue in that race. We saw it last year. Uh, with uh, the cinema, cinema race. Um, and I think that, you know, amid COVID is going to present just a continued challenge for her uh, competing against someone like Mark Kelly. And I also think, by the way, like typically I'd say, well, she'd have such a tremendous asset being a veteran running in a, in a seat like this. But not only is Mark Kelly an, a, a veteran, a fighter pilot, uh, but he's an astronaut. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like he's he went up sir right? figuratively an astronaut he's literally an astronaut right <laughs> so like i feel really good about that like democrats should not take their foot off the gas pedal though you, you can't take anything for granted um but that's a and, and you're seeing i mean biden's obviously polling ahead in, the, in that seat too in that state too so i think you know mark kelly is just running an incredible campaign a very inspiring he's got a great message uh, and I think just uh, Democrats have to sort of continue to double down. You know, that primary is coming up in August, so it'll be interesting to see whether or not like Republican turnout is suppressed just because there's not a lot of enthusiasm for McSally, right? So we'll have to watch and sort of monitor that. Well, you know, you mentioned Biden, and let, let me just ask, is Arizona about to be a blue state? Is that really where we are? Yeah, I think it's plausible. I mean, obviously, you know, we flipped the Senate seat in, in 18. Um, the real clear politics average has him up, I think, about four points right now. So I, th I think we've got a hell of a shot, to be honest with you, to win Arizona. I think. And what's great about that state is like last cycle, you know, we can talk about the presidential race later. But, you know, of the three firewall states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, that we lost last cycle, Wisconsin has 10 electoral college votes. Arizona has 11. So if it ever comes down to like a one a one electoral college vote uh, difference uh, for the presidency, you know, having Arizona in your corner is uh, is a good thing for Democrats. So we'll see, but I feel like it's uh, more likely than not that we're going to flip that seat. That's yeah, and, and I think one of the things to me that's really promising about the Arizona flip, if if that happens, is this feels like more strategic to me than maybe some other states because a lot of what's driving this is Latinos supporting the Democratic Party by enormous numbers. And, and if, that, if that is a, a longer term trend, it's, it's obviously been a trend here in California for you know, quite some time. But if that's really happening in Arizona, it's already happened in Nevada in some ways, that could come to other states, even conceivably Texas, which, which we'll talk about. But is that really what's um, the big demographic issue that's driving the trend in Arizona? Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly, Brian. It, it is it is the power of the the political muscle behind the Latino uh, vote. Um, you saw that in eighteen, and frankly, like that's a knock on Republicans because like George Bush got a much larger slice of Latinos broadly when he ran for president than like Trump. Trump is like alienated Latinos, and frankly, like 
every marginalized group, right? Let's be real. Um, and that's why Democrats have continued to consolidate that voter constituency. And that is what helped propel Democrats across the country in 18 to win a lot of these seats, uh, particularly in Arizona. Um, but I think that's what's going to create a sort of a new blue firewall is what we're looking at out west. Uh, you know, in Arizona, uh, you mentioned obviously Nevada, but Colorado too has a large Latino population, which has, you know, over recent years made that state very blue. Um, and, and obviously is going to make that Senate race very competitive. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the, the Latino vote is enormously powerful, uh, and it's only going to continue to grow in strength as that population continues to grow. Um, and, and these voters exercise their, their voices at the ballot box. Um, so I think ultimately like that is going to be the determining factor, whether or not we win both the presidential level and the Senate level in Arizona for Democrats. You mentioned Colorado. That's next on my list. Let, let's talk about that. Um, sure. Is is Cory Gardner the most endangered Republican in the country? Yeah, I think he and, and uh, Martha McSally are tied, but uh, I, I definitely think for sure, um, you know, he's enormously vulnerable. And I think it's just, you know, for him in a state like Colorado to align yourself at the hip with Donald Trump is just toxic, right? Um, and also, I mean, same thing with Martha McSally, like the Affordable Care Act vote. I think healthcare is going to be one of the most compelling issues in that state. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that definitely is going to be, you know, tied, I think, for number one with the most competitive uh, Senate race. Can't, and candidly, full disclosure, we're doing a super PAC in that state as well for the Colorado working families. Um, but uh, that's why we're targeting it, because we think it's flippable. Um, I think, you know, I, Gardner's, Gardner's, pardon me, he's raised like a sizable sum of money, around $13 million to Hickenlooper has raised around 12. What's fascinating to watch right now, you've got the June 30th, I think it's June 30th, the upcoming Colorado primary. And Hickenlooper looked like a month ago, he was just kind of running away with the primary election, but he's running against the former speaker of the state house in Colorado, Andrew Romanoff, um, who's sort of a clean energy uh, guru uh, nowadays. And, uh, you know, that race, uh, it, I wouldn't say it's necessarily incredibly competitive because recent polling out has shown that Hickenlooper still has a double digit lead. I think he's up by 12 points, but you know, a couple months ago, Romanoff was down 20, 30 points. I mean, so he has closed the gap a little bit, but I think part of that is a function of just like undecided Democrats making their decision. Like until we get into like single digit territory, I feel really, really confident that John Hickenlooper is gonna come out of that election and uh, be in the general versus Cory Gardner. But it'll be interesting to watch uh, to see what happens over the next couple days or so. Um, we've seen a tremendous amount of money uh, pour in from, um, you know, the DSCC and some of these other outside groups uh, on behalf of John Hickenlooper, uh, and also attacking Cory Gardner, tying him to Donald Trump too, right? So, um, and then Romanoff, who, uh, you know, has generated a little bit more earned media. They've had a couple of debates that have, uh, you know, recently taken place. Um, but I, I still feel like Hickenlooper is going to win and have a substantial margin. Uh, and then obviously, you know, polling indicates that, I think there was the poll actually that the Denver Post put out uh, by Keating Research that had um, Hickenlooper up like 18 points or something like that over Cory Gardner. And that was back in May. The world has changed since then, sure. <laughs> as it does all the time sure. <laughs> in this new uh, reality that we all live in. But um, yeah, I, th I definitely think like that, that is a big flippable seat for the Senate for Democrats. Okay, so Arizona probably need to win. Colorado, we probably need to win to get to, to the five number that you started with. Do we have to win Maine? Um, are we likely to win Maine? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we need to win Maine. 
I think uh, like in terms of like all the other races that uh, we're watching, I think Maine definitely is like the third the third one in terms of most flippable. Uh, you've got Sarah Gideon who's up over Susan Collins. Uh, you know, polling averages have her you know just about two and a half percent over Collins. And I think that you know that's a state that uh, prides itself on sort of their uh, you know, being an independent, uh, they, they elect a lot of, uh, you know, independent minded leaders. And, and frankly, I think Susan Collins has just done the opposite with her Supreme Co uh, Supreme Court votes, siding with Donald Trump repeatedly on healthcare issues. I mean, she just has not really stood up and been that traditional check uh, on the president or on their party, um, like you would normally see from a sort of independent minded uh, Mainer. So I, I think she's enormously vulnerable. Uh, and Gideon's raised more money than her. Like Susan Collins has raised like 13.2 million, Gideon's raised 14.2. Not that that's a huge gap, but it's telling. I mean, when you're the incumbent, typically you're in more of a position to raise more money. Uh, and I think her fundraising perhaps is starting to slow down a little bit because of these continued polling that just polls that just show her on a downward trajectory. Um, so, you know, something to watch for sure. But I think if we're gonna flip the Senate, we have to win Maine. Okay. So Arizona, Colorado, Maine. Uh, now I think it really gets interesting. What, what's the next one most likely to flip to you? Honestly, like I wouldn't say this under different circumstances um, because Montana is such a, I mean, Trump won by 20 points plus uh, in 16. But you got the governor who's an incredibly uh, popular, uh, Steve Bullock running uh, up in that race. And, you know, there's not a lot of polling out of that state. Montana State University put out a survey in May that they had uh, Bullock up seven points. So, um, you know, I think uh, that race is going to be really competitive, but uh, I think Bullock can, can pull it off. If he's won there once, I think he can win again. Um, and I don't think Trump is as popular in that state as he was in 16. Okay. Uh, and, and people generally like Bullock. Uh, he's got a lot of support. I mean, he was able to just kind of clear the field, uh, essentially, in the primary. Um, so I think that's an interesting race to watch. Um, you know, North Carolina as well. Uh, you got uh, Democrat Cal Cunningham, who's running against Tom Tillis. Um, you know, the polling averages have that race. I mean, essentially within the margin of error. I think Tillis is up by half a percent. Uh, now, he's gobbled up way more uh, money in terms of fundraising than Cunningham. I think he's raised like $11.7 million to Cal Cunningham, 7.7. So, you know, Cal Cunningham's going to have to close that gap. But, uh, you know, that race or that state, I should say, in particular, is going to be a key battleground for the Biden campaign. So you're going to have uh, a lot of money pouring into that state uh, in paid communications and field and all these sorts of things. They're going to help with down ballot races like the U.S. Senate race, right? So, I mean, if it's already a razor thin margin, um, I mean, who knows what's going to happen at the presidential level? The world can change again uh, in any day with Donald Trump tweeting, <laughs> you know? So, but, but, uh, but that's one of the closest Senate races out there right now. So I think that's going to be competitive. I also think, I mean, like South Carolina is interesting. You know, Lindsey Graham has really just uh, evolved from this uh, best friend of John McCain, who was like a, a hero. Uh, Democrats and Republicans always had a tremendous respect for John McCain. And now he's become just this uh, lapdog of Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, so that begs the question of like, how do voters feel about that in that state? Now, obviously, South Carolina historically is a red state. It's gone with Donald Trump in the past. But you got Jamie Harrison out there raising... I mean, tons of dough, right? I mean, he's raised like almost $20 million. Graham's raised more, he's raised like uh, 26 million, but 
538 actually has a polling out there indicating that that race is neck and neck. I mean, you got 42 to 42, according to 538's latest poll. So I think it's still too early to tell, but I also think just like we're in this historic sort of moment in time uh, with the BLM movement, with George Floyd. And, um, you know, I think, and I hope that uh, in, in all corners of the country, uh, we have tremendous enthusiasm from all demographics, of course, but particularly among African-Americans in some of these Southern states. I mean, uh, you know, having someone like Jamie Harrison at the top of the ticket, I think really uh, hopefully will electrify voters and inspire them to turn out in big numbers. Um, and also in states like Georgia, right, in Kentucky, um, where like, you know, those are voters that in order to win, like we have to have the African-American Democratic base to turn out in huge numbers to make sure that those Senate races are competitive. Yeah, so you, you've got, you know, uh, several southern states now with, with competitive races. And, and, you know, the Georgia thing I want to talk about more because that's confusing to follow with, with the two races going on at the same time. Um, but but let's, let's, let's go back and unpack a little bit of the North Carolina, South Carolina discussion. So North Carolina, um, a swing state, Obama, a state that Obama won, won I'm not recalling, but, it, but at, least, at least in 08. Um, and I think probably didn't win again in, in 2012, but a legitimate swing state that, that could tip in the presidential race. So some competitive forces happening at the, at the top of the ticket. Uh, not necessarily the case in South Carolina, correct? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think Democrats are going to win that, that race um, in terms of uh, the presidential in South Carolina. I mean, look, like it's Donald Trump. He is not a traditional candidate or president. So I think anything is possible, but I think it's unlikely that we're going to win uh, at the presidential level. But Lindsey Graham is is vulnerable. I mean, we're seeing that in polling. Uh, we're seeing that with, uh, you know, the uh, fundraising abilities of, uh, of Jamie Harrison. So, you know, I think it's something to monitor for sure. Um, I, I think if I had to guess, like North Carolina at the is probably going to go blue uh, at the presidential level. And I think we'll probably can win that Senate seat. And I think South Carolina is harder, um, but it's not out of the realm of possibility given the circumstances with uh, this new world we're living in with COVID, with healthcare continuing to be a top of mind issue with polling for the, uh, with the Harrison campaign and obviously his fundraising. So, you know, something to watch and sort of continue to gauge in the months ahead. Yeah, to your point about the Harrison fundraising, like everybody I know who's giving money to Democratic Senate candidates around the country, the, the, the conversation typically goes something like this. They'll, they'll have a conversation about which are the most competitive races, and they're just calculating and giving money, you know, in Arizona, in Colorado, in Maine. And then after they do that, they go, and then I just want to give money against Lindsey Graham because I just want to, <laughs> even if it's not going to be a winner. And they say the same thing about Mitch McConnell's race, which, which we'll talk about. So, so to your point, you know, maybe there is sort of an independent fundraising juggernaut because Graham has gone so completely to the zoo in transforming himself into, I, I don't know, I don't know what he is. You, you said lapdog, I guess that's the right term, but he's not the same Lindsey Graham that people thought they knew for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, like his flip-flop is just so eg egregious, right? I mean, like, you remember like all of the deplorable things that he said about Donald Trump in 16. Like, how can you ever go from that to being the, the so-called lapdog? Like, like, what is that, right? <laughs> like, it's like, I mean, uh, I just, I don't think I've ever seen something so extreme, like, you know, being so one-sided and then so in line or in the pocket of, uh, you know, the other side. Um, something just 
the profound must have happened to have created that, right? Uh, and I don't know what it is, but... Um, well, he, gave, you know, he gave this interview where he was pretty blunt about it. He just said, if I'm not there, I can't do anything. And that is a, it's a really dangerous rationalization. I know a lot of politicians make it, but... Uh, he, uh, for him, for him to, as you say, go from like so on one side. Uh, imagine John McCain being alive. Like, could we really imagine Lindsey Graham defending Donald Trump um, with the you know attacks he's even made against a, a dead war hero? And I think that's part of what is you know so unseemly about this is is it seems like well only because one of your best friends in the world is is gone do you feel like you can make this political deal with the devil um, yeah i think the i think the if mccain was still here and serving in the senate um and graham did what he's doing now that political marriage would have translated into a political divorce yeah um and it would have been nasty out in the public um a lot of dirty laundry aired out um I just, I can't imagine uh, anything just more, you know, two-faced. Um, it's like, okay, I can't do anything if I'm not there. And it's like, buddy, you're not doing anything. Like, you have a criminal in the White House and you haven't stopped him once. You've had ample opportunity to do one thing. Right. Not one time have you stood up to him. Uh, the guy just lacks backbone and guts and grit and... I just think he's everything that he says is just you know full of hypocrisy. You just you honestly can't believe anything that he says. And and I hope that the Harrison campaign really just paints a picture of just Lindsey Graham being dishonest and someone who just lacks real integrity and honor. I mean, he's just like you can't flip flop on something like that. Um, like I get it if it's uh, if it, you know if it's like you're like a George Bush Republican and you know you want to flip you know, on something. It's just like Donald Trump, let's face it, like Donald Trump, uh, he is a criminal in the White House, right? Like, I mean, he is, he is literally an unindicted co-conspirator. Right. Like, 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 I just, like, you, you lack severe integrity if you're someone like Lindsey Graham, who just lines yourself up with him, uh, especially after, and it wasn't just like, you know, he said like one or two negative things about Trump in 16. Like he was leading the charge to prevent Donald Trump from being the nominee. And then once he was the nominee, he was still calling him out, right? So like, I, I don't know. I just, uh, I think that's the play. I mean, I'm not privy to any internal polling in that state, but I just think, um, you know, this is a politician who will do uh, anything that is politically advantageous to save his political career. And I think that could be quite a compelling story to tell to the electorate in South Carolina come the fall from the Harrison campaign. Well, if if uh, Graham loses on election night, um, it, it is the second most satisfying loss that we can imagine. And of course, the most satisfying loss we could imagine is if Mitch McConnell goes down. So what is happening in that race? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, first of all, like, I mean, Amy McGrath has I don't, I'd have to double check this, but she's probably like arguably raised more money than any Senate candidate ever. Like, I think she's raised over $41 million. Uh, we were talking about this the other day, Brian, but like, I mean, I'm in Los Angeles and I get Amy McGrath television ads on cable and broadcast, like asking for money. Like she, it costs so much money to like advertise in the LA media market. And she's doing that and then asking other people to raise money. So clearly like, obviously she's a national figure. She's got a, an amazing story to tell. People fell in love with her candidacy. 
uh, last cycle and uh, what propelled her to this campaign. Um, so, you know, she's obviously got resources, but I think in this sort of um, moment in history, you've got another primary candidate, uh, Charles Booker, who is kind of the insurgent against Amy, who's sort of, you know, more of the established candidate. She's been in the race for quite some time. She ran last cycle. Um, and he's got a lot of momentum. Um, and he's raised a fraction of what McGrath has raised, obviously, that primaries today. Um, but I was looking this morning. So Civics uh, and Data for Progress put out a poll that has uh, Booker leading McGrath by eight points uh, in that state Amazing. Uh, for the primary today. So we'll see later tonight um, sort of what ultimately happens there. Um, but bottom line, look, I think McConnell can be blamed for all of the gridlock. I mean, McConnell Trump can be blamed for all of the gridlock and the prevention of any progress on any meaningful, big, bold legislation to help lift up and improve uh, the quality of life for the American people. And I think whoever the nominee is, whether it's McGrath or Booker, I just want a good Democrat. They're both good Democrats, so I don't really have a, uh, a chosen candidate in that race. Um, I just hope that they package that and make it clear that like people who are hurting in Kentucky are hurting because of the gridlock that was caused by Mitch McConnell. Um, and, and like Mitch is not raising, I mean, like he's raised $32 million. He's only got 15 million cash on hand um, versus McGrath, who I think as of the last report had like 19 million cash on hand. Um, so I think he's vulnerable. Um, I think there's a compelling story to tell against uh, him. I mean, he is the ultimate sort of Washington elitist um, and I think that um, is a great message in a more, you know, uh, rural state, <clears throat> excuse me. And then also, let's not forget, like, this election comes on the heels of Democrats winning the governor's race in Kentucky last cycle. Right. And Andrew Scheer, who was the former attorney general, who ran against the incumbent in, a, in an off-cycle year, by the way, right? So, like, turnout was lower in an odd year versus the even year. Um, and Democrats won the governorship. Uh, so I think, honestly, anything is possible in that state. I just uh, think, you know, we've got to make sure that uh, whoever the Democrat is, that they just hold McConnell accountable for his, you know, countless failures. Because, I mean, the, the thing is, it's, it's kind of like an embarrassment of riches in terms of the negatives. You've just got to figure out strategically what's the best story to tell in terms of taking him down. Uh, I totally agree. So one more state and the Senate side, and then I want to turn to the presidential race, um, but let's stick with the South and talk about Georgia. What, what do you make of those races? This is a state that, um, you know, has shown some signs of real competitiveness lately. Where, where do you rate these in the, in the chance to, to flip a seat here? I think it's a big toss up, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I think um, you have, a lot of democratic enthusiasm in that state. You know, obviously uh, there were major voting issues last cycle when Stacey Abrams ran for governor. And uh, a, lot of a lot of folks believe that um, suppressed turnout uh, led to her uh, defeat. Um, and they don't wanna see that happen again. And so, you know, a lot of um, sort of different circumstances happening in that state. But I definitely think it's a toss up. I definitely think it's gonna be competitive. I mean, John Ossoff, who's the nominee running against David Perdue, I saw a poll out in May by Civics that had him up by two points. Um, so look, two points within the margin of error. Um, but this is Georgia we're talking about. This isn't Nevada or Colorado, right? So it's very exciting to see a Democrat being competitive in a US Senate race 
um, in the South, in a state like Georgia. Um, and we know just because Ossoff has arguably raised almost, you know, he's probably in the top tier in terms of congressional fundraising when he ran in 17 for that House seat. So we know he's a prolific fundraiser. Um, so, you know, I think it's a, it's a big question in terms of um, whether or not we could, we could flip that seat. I mean, and also like, I think if the Biden campaigns invests in that state, which let's be real, it's not a top tier target for Biden, right? Like, I think it could be a battleground, um, but we have to see more consistent polling there. I think, you know, the, the, the firewall that we lost last cycle, plus Arizona, uh, Virginia, Florida, North Carolina are the top tier sort of um, targets. But like, if the Biden campaign does compete in Georgia, like that's gonna have a real tangible down ballot effect uh, or impact uh, for the Senate race. And also like, I mean, it's not like David Perdue is like raising tons of dough. He's at $13 million, uh, you know, got 9.3 cash on hand as of the last uh, latest report. So, I mean, Asif obviously had to spend down because he had a competitive primary. Um, but I definitely think that, you know, he's going to, I mean, he, if you remember, I mean, most of his money was raised online anyway. So he can hit up those grassroots online donors all across America repeatedly. So I think he'll probably be in a position where he has parity or even like outraises Purdue. Uh, and I think if you have that in conjunction with, uh, you know, potentially uh, Biden weighing in on the race. And, and also, like, let's see if Barack Obama has influence, like if he weighs in and campaigns at all for Asif. Um, I mean, in the new COVID world that we're living in, I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, but I do think uh, that that race needs to be watched. Uh, and I think it's going to continue to be competitive. Yeah, so, so what we talked about the trend in the West, the rise of Latino, um, say, in these elections. But now we're talking about quite a few Southern states being in play in the Senate. Uh, we talked about North Carolina, we talked about South Carolina, Georgia, and Kentucky. Is there a trend that you're, you make here? Or is this sort, sort of some individual weakness of some incumbents and some individual strength of some challengers? Or, or what, you know, what, what's really happening in the South here? It's a great question. I mean, I'd love to say it's a trend. I just think, honestly, uh, given the uh, sort of dynamic of uh, the Trump presidency, I think that has uh, created uh, this sort of systemic backlash against him. And it has made all of these senators, the Republican incumbent senators, who have you know voted in lockstep with him vulnerable. I'd love to say that it's a trend. I think it's too early to tell, to be honest with you. Um, I think that, I mean, you're, it's pretty incredible, though, that we're talking about U.S. Senate races and Democrats being competitive in South Carolina, North Carolina, Kentucky yeah, <laughs> and Georgia, right? Um, but I think we need to get past a couple cycles to really be able to tell if this is just a Trump dynamic or, you know, once we, once we get past the Trump presidency or perhaps, you know, into the midterms, like a 2022 of the Biden presidency, fingers crossed. Uh, you know, I think then we'll be able to make a real judgment on whether or not uh, this is a this is a trend. Um, I mean, one would hope, right? But for as a Democrat, but well, we'll see. I mean, if we're if we're going to see a real electoral consequence or accomplishment of the BLM movement, is is this where you'd expect to see it first? Just just in terms of of, of the potential increase in African American turnout in some of these states? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think the biggest indicator is going to be young African American voters, right? Like we saw enormous enthusiasm for uh, Barack Obama in 2008, obviously, I mean, 2012 too. Um, there was a little bit of a drop off uh, in 16. 
Um, and so, you know, the question is like, do young people, particularly African-American young voters, uh, do they turn out in huge numbers in these Southern states? Uh, older African-American voters are good, consistent uh, voters. They, they typically turn out in these elections, but a lot of young people who just don't vote. And uh, if Democrats are able to, you know, energize and give some motivation to those younger voters, um, I think that that could really help to close the gap in some of these key competitive races. All right, so let me put you on the spot. If, if you were in Vegas today and you had to bet on Democratic odds to win the Senate, where, where would you put it? So uh, I would say uh, Arizona, Colorado, uh, Maine. Um, honestly, I feel really good about Montana. Um, just be, That's like a Bullock thing. He's Democratic governor. He's proven to be successful there. Um, but I think Arizona, Colorado, Maine are almost certain. Um, we shouldn't take them for granted, and they're very competitive, and they're going to be hard to win. Um, keep giving up the Senate races. Those are the best. <laughs> yeah, and, and then you got Montana, and then I think probably North Carolina is next on the list, just because there's going to be so much spending at the presidential level that it's going to have a down ballot effect uh, in that Senate race. So, do you like our odds to take back the Senate? Yeah, I feel pretty good about it. I mean, I'd say it's probably 60 40, you know, like, I mean, I, I think it's early, right? Like, I'd probably have a higher, you know, if these polls were, uh, if we were in September, for example, and we saw these numbers, you know, it might be a little bit higher. Um, but I feel really good about it right now. And fantastic. Well, if, if you feel good, I feel a little bit better. So that's, that's, that's encouraging. Okay, well, let's, let's turn to the big prize. Let's, let's talk about the presidential race. And, um, you know, we're, we're having this conversation at a time where uh, Biden just seems to be leading in double digits by most polls, including a Fox News poll last week that I think had him up by 12. Um, I, I find polls along those lines and even discussions about large margins just like completely alarming, having been through the many traumatic cycles of presidential races before as a Democrat. But as you say, everything is different this time. And it's really hard for me to make sense of where things are, both in the COVID world and the Trump world. What, what do you think of this, the state of the race right now? Yeah, I mean, I guess... Um... Honestly, I got like butterflies in my stomach because like, I want to feel really good about where we're at. And, and generally I do, right? Like if you look at the polling, um, which is the best indication of the race, like I feel really good. But we all felt really good. I remember like I was on Fox Los Angeles all day on election day, uh, 2016, and in the evening uh, with a Republican consultant friend of mine who I used to do CNN with. And both of us gave a, an electoral college landslide to Hillary Clinton because all the polls had her leading. Now, the polls were right about the popular vote, just not the electoral college vote. So can't take anything for granted. Um, and, you know, who knows what could happen? Like someone could come up with a vaccine tomorrow uh, and Donald Trump could disingenuously try to take credit for it and the economy can come back and we could be within a razor's in margin within a matter of weeks, right? Or, or so, it's inconceivable to imagine, but the Russians could interfere with the election. But right, or I mean, according to John Bolton's new book, right, like they'd be asked right. the Chinese to interfere, right? right. But like, um, anything could happen. And so we should feel good about where we're at, but uh, we should be clear-eyed and laser focused on doing nothing but winning and making sure that every day uh, we're putting Joe Biden in a position to get over the top to defeat Donald Trump. So with that being said, I mean, if you, you're right. I mean, I looked at that Fox News poll and was just struck in mean, 12 points nationally. It's incredible. Um, and if you, you know, fascinatingly, if you look at uh, sort of today, let's look at a snapshot of today, June 23rd, uh, 
during the uh, Clinton-Trump race versus today for Biden, uh, polling averages had Clinton up about 6.5% uh, at about this time four years ago. Biden's up 9.3%. Um, and I think that is largely a function of just uh, you know, the dynamics of this race. Trump is now an incumbent, right? He was running as an outsider, the anti-establishment, the I'm gonna shake up Washington kind of guy. And uh, uh, now you, uh, you're seeing um, you know, Biden in a significantly stronger position than Hillary. Uh, he's running, I mean, even though he's a former vice president, he's running as sort of the outsider. Um, and I think uh, that, that is something the Democrats ought to feel good about, uh, but not become complacent, right? Like we, we need to be in a position where we are fighting to the bitter end um, because now we're sort of in sprint mode, right? There's no longer a marathon, we're in sprint mode. We're what, four months, four or so months out. Um, and uh, you know, the world can change at any moment. Um, what is interesting is, you know, I'd say, uh, Brian, four months ago, people were nervous about states like Minnesota for Democrats. Right, right. And now like the polling averages have like Biden up 16 points. Yeah. Say, like Virginia, people were like, oh, are we gonna win it again? Like we're up 11 points, right? Um, you know, Wisconsin still makes me a little queasy. Uh, Wisconsin, uh, Biden, according to polling averages is up only about 5%. Um, I feel really good about Michigan. We're averaging about 8% up. Um, Pennsylvania is probably a little closer than I'd like to be. Uh, Biden's averaging uh, according to Real Clear Politics, around 5% over Trump. Arizona up four, Florida up six. Um, but here's the bombshell, right? We've talked about this a little bit. Texas, Trump is up only 1.5% over Biden. Stunning, stunning. Right, stunning. right? 30, 34 electoral college votes. I mean, OMG. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I, I, I hesitate sometimes to indulge this conversation about Texas only for fear of like my friends will start, you know, uh, giving all their dollars to like Texas races, thinking that that's the way we're going to win it. But with you, I have no qualms about it whatsoever. So, so let's let's talk about is this real? I mean, this is more than one poll. This is this is actually an average of of polls that that we're seeing now. So, what what's going on in Texas? Yeah, I mean, uh, to your point earlier about some of these sort of Western states. I mean, I think it's largely a function of the power of the uh, Latino vote and how. You know, let's go back to the Bush days. Like Bush, as a compassionate conservative, was able to cobble together a somewhat meaningful coalition of Latino voters yeah. in states like Texas, right? And kept it deeply red. Um, increasingly, the Republican Party, I mean, if you think back just like to the horrible things that Republicans have done to Latinos, family separation, like ripping apart children from their moms and their dads, like as a parent, I can't imagine something like that. Um, and it's just, you know, not just lacks compassion, it's just lacks human rights. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, one of the worst things that uh, a government can do to people and to families, ripping apart children from their moms and dads. So, I mean, I just think, I mean, it could be that, it could be a range of other issues. Um, but Republicans have just not been supportive of largely, their policies have not been supportive of that demographic. And increasingly the Latino population is growing in states like Texas. And uh, we saw this in some of the house races uh, being more competitive last cycle uh, in Texas. And now there's a number of house races. There's the state legislative races that are all in play. I mean, look at Beto's race in 2018, right? I mean, he came 
within a razor thin margin of flipping a U.S. Senate seat against Ted Cruz. Who may, I mean, who's like a presidential candidate. At one point, he was like the darling of the right wing, you know, world. Um, so the fact that I think Beto sort of uh, shook that tree loose, I think it, it's clear that there is a there is a roadmap to winning Texas. Uh, we need to see more consistent polling with Biden ahead of Trump, but like the trajectory is there. Um, it's just unclear if we're going to be able to close that gap before November. But that being said, if I was directing resources on behalf of a presidential campaign or Senate campaigns, like I would definitely try to do at least at a minimum a head fake and like force Trump to spend in that state to drain his resources elsewhere and make it competitive, right? Because um, you never know with turnout. Um, but I think... Um, you know, Democrats ought to be like watching that race, that state like a hawk, you know? Well, I think you raised a really interesting point is if you're the Biden campaign, how do you, how do you play this? Because this is where I, I struggle turning what's obvious momentum into a, a real win. You know, Hillary caught a ton of shit for going to some states that she didn't win. And, and you know, I think that experience is um, top of mind to a lot of people advising Biden. They don't want to be accused of the same thing, of getting greedy. But on the other hand, this is such a big enchilada, it, it can change it. Is, is there a way to do a head fake like you suggest, which makes perfect sense, but is there a way to do that without bleeding a ton of resources? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, you've got the Lincoln Project, which is this group of Republican consultants, uh, who some of which are from, you know, McCain, Romney world, um, George Conway, his wife is Kellyanne Conway. I mean, they're doing, I mean, really just killer ads against Trump and some of these uh, Republican senators who vote in lockstep with Trump. So I think perhaps, you know, that, or alternatively, there's this new sort of Bush Republican super PAC. Like that's a beautiful place for these Republican uh, super PACs to throw down and just start hammering Trump in, the, in those states like Texas, right? Because it doesn't force the Biden campaign to make a calculus, like does it make sense to spend... Because let's not forget, like Texas has 34 electoral college votes because it's got such a large population. But that also means it's very expensive to advertise it, right? You have incredibly expensive media markets from Austin to Houston to, to Dallas to El Paso. Like it's a lot of money. Like if you're going to go in, you don't just go into one media market, right? You've got to go all in. And to sustain a campaign for a month, two months is uh, very expensive. So I think, look, um, no, no entity should, should really throw down uh, unless there is polling that indicates there's a pathway uh, for Biden to win that state. But I do think that if there were super PACs that go in, you know, groups that specialize in Western states, because I think it's very different from some of these other Midwestern or Southern states, right? Like Texas is its own animal, people who have a profound understanding of that state, but also like Republicans who have worked in that state, who have won that state, who know to talk like who know how to talk to Republicans, I guess the big swing vote there is like, how do you get those John McCain Republicans who believe in decency and humility and being kind to one another uh, to peel off from Donald Trump, who just says like racist, horrifying, deplorable things like on a daily basis or, or just simply lies, right? Like, like Republicans who believe in facts and who like the president should uh, be truthful and honest to the American people versus uh, the Trump people who are okay with him lying apparently, right? Like that, that slice of the base that like won't leave him, right? Like if you can figure out how to just fracture that Republican coalition a little bit, 
consolidate those Democrats, consolidate those independent swing voters. Like that's the coalition to win. The question is, uh, is there polling that indicates with X message, you can peel off those pieces of that coalition to cement that uh, entity and propel uh, Biden to victory. And that's the big unknown. I think it's too early to tell. I wonder if campaigning in the age of COVID can make it easier to take a shot at a place like Texas. So you're 100% right, of course, about the, the media price. But if you can overcome that with maybe some of these Republican outside groups, which is a fantastic idea, um, at least then you don't have the issue of the candidate's time, which is part of what Hillary got so criticized for, like spending time in states that she ultimately didn't win. Um, presumably, we're still not talking about large campaign style rallies come the fall. So Biden doesn't actually have to go there to to do this right so if you can figure out the the money aspect of it i i wonder if COVID in a weird way makes it more likely that the the campaign does take a chance at a place like that it's possible i mean look i mean polling averages have biden down 1.5 percent and he hasn't gone there right <laughs> so far so good <laughs> um, so you know let's let's see like what maybe we revisit in a month and just kind of see what the trajectory looks like because I think it's, you know, it's definitely like, like, like I remember in 16, there was like one poll that had Hillary within striking distance, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone was like, oh, that's an outlier. It's not real. Forget about it. Um, but now we're consistently seeing like, you know, razor thin margins between Trump and Biden in that state. So yeah, I think maybe that's the play. Like, I think, look, winning uh, and coming and getting sort of the low hanging fruit has to be priority number one. And that's like the firewall, the Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Like get those, right? Win Virginia and win North Carolina and hope to get Florida. And then that's like, right, like that plus like those, the states that we won last cycle, done. We won, right? Essentially, right. Uh, or close to it. Um, pick up Arizona, icing on the cake. Um, you know, and and that's, you haven't mentioned Ohio, which I take it you're a little more bearish about. Yeah, I think that one's tough. I think that one's trending away from Democrats, to be honest yeah. with you. I mean, look, um, again, in the Trump uh, presidency, like anything's possible for sure. Um, and polling's certainly gotten closer uh, in that state, but I wouldn't like say it's like tier one, tier two. At the moment, a lot of the betting money for VP seems to be moving to our Senator Kamala Harris. Um, you know, she's clearly brings a lot to the table as a potential VP pick, um, not necessarily to help win California, which, which we think is a solidly democratic state but my first question is who do you think is is really on the short list right now where do you see this pick headed and and what do you think of Kamala as a potential VP um well I am a huge Kamala Harris fan and um I think that uh she'd be an incredible pick um I and I'm by the way I can't tell you how excited I am to hear that there's two Californians on the short list <laughs> Uh, there's been recent rumblings out there in the news. CBS did a piece this morning that Congresswoman Karen Bass, former California Assembly Speaker, uh, is is now being considered, has been considered uh, for, for VP. So uh, love to hear that. Um, you know, I mean, and then like there's some exciting candidates. Uh, uh, you know, you've got uh, Michelle Lujan Grissom out of uh, New Mexico, the governor there, who formerly was a Congresswoman. Val Demings, Congresswoman, former police chief. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren obviously is, is among those who have been talked about. Amy Klobuchar took her name out of the running last week. So I think there's a, there's a lot of good, I mean, uh, Susan Rice, there's a lot of good 
Democrats. I'm really excited that uh, Joe's going to pick a woman. I think it's about time. Uh, love to see a woman president, but uh, you know, uh, breaking that glass ceiling and having a woman vice president is a good first step. Um, so, but I think, look, there's definitely um, a lot of assets that you get with Kamala Harris. Uh, she's hip. Uh, she, I think, really just uh, can connect with young people, and we need that to win. Uh, young people didn't vote in 16 at the same clip that they did for Barack Obama in 2008. And I think we need somebody, and look, let's be real, like, I love Joe Biden, but like, I think Kamala Harris can really help to connect with that constituency to hopefully inspire them to turn out in larger numbers. So I think that's key. And as we talk about some of these Southern states, like, again, another reason why someone like Kamala Harris uh, could help with that. I also think just, um, you know, being a California Attorney General, um, you know, she's a you know a, a, a law law enforcement person, and I think going up toe to toe against Mike Pence on the debate stage uh, will definitely uh, put her in a strong position, being able to talk about you know uh, prosecution, going after the big banks who exploited uh, you know homeowners and working people in the during the Great Recession. I mean, she's just done tremendous work going after big pharmaceutical corporations. Uh, so I think, you know, Kamala definitely, for a number of reasons, I mean, not just that, obviously, as a senator, she's built up an incredible uh, and wide-ranging record on, you know, issues ranging from climate to, um, obviously, there's gridlock, but like in terms of advancing policy ideas, because, you know, McConnell only lets what McConnell wants to pass the Senate, but putting forward bold and thoughtful ideas on issues ranging from, you know, climate to healthcare to lowering prescription drug prices to common sense gun laws to grappling with COVID. I mean, she's done it as a U.S. senator. Um, and I also think, frankly, being from the Golden State puts her in a very strong position, uh, as she showed during her presidential race, of so being a prolific fundraiser for the ticket. We need someone who can help Joe to raise, you know, real meaningful resources to compete with Donald Trump. Like, Trump obviously has had a fundraising head start because he's the nominee, uh, he didn't have a primary, but also like at any minute, if he wanted to, he could just cut a check, right? Like he's not Mike Bloomberg rich, but like he could cut a check if he wanted to, right? So like we have to raise money. And I think having someone like Kamala Harris uh, could really be valuable. Um, you know, the one thing that I think will probably be used against her is, you know, she had a couple, uh, you know, sharp elbows in early debates against Biden. Um, and those were kick-ass debates, <laughs> right? Let's be real. I mean, Kamala Harris, Harris as a formidable debater. Um, she went toe to toe, and at some point, if she is the VP pick, you know, obviously, the objective reporters are going to ask her about it and prep. I'm really confident she's going to have responses. Uh, but that's something that, uh, you know, really shows. So, Dave, let me ask you this. I those, all those arguments make perfect sense about why Kamala. The the only thing that holds me up on thinking this is the right move is I wonder if it sufficiently exploits one of the electoral trends that we were talking about before. You know, it's it's not a Latina from the West. It's not an African American from the South. It is an African American, of course. Uh, does she does she add anything electorally? As Biden, I, I think in retrospect, really did to Obama's ticket. I think he was a, obviously a huge help in, in Pennsylvania, and I think he, I think he was a big help in Florida too. Uh, and I think the Biden, you know, right. the Biden campaign, the Biden campaign, you know, that being his own experience, should be supremely conscious of of the impact that 
electorally that a VP pick can make. Does, does she, does she uh, check that box? Sorry, you cut out for a minute. Does Kamala check that box? Yes. Yeah, I mean, look, California is, um, is the home of the, much of the resistance um, across the country in terms of um, uh, progressivism and uh, Democrats standing up to Trump. Um, it's one of the homes, there are many homes. Um, but let's be real, it is a deep navy blue seat. Um, it's as blue as you can get. Uh, there are blue sta states that are as blue, but it is among the bluest states. So is it a swing state that, uh, you know, having her on board, you know, brings that state along? No, um, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, um, I think there are other factors at play that make her a very powerful uh, choice for vice president. And I think having, I mean, let's be real, she ran for president and uh, was very competitive early on. Uh, and was able to build up a wide-ranging coalition in all corners of the country. And I think having someone like Kamala Harris on the ticket would inspire young people in states like Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina uh, and in Texas, right? Like to, 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 it would help motivate them to turn out. Um, and I think being from a state that has such a, a large Latino population, I mean, Kamala Harris fundamentally understands the Latino community just as she does other communities that she represents in the most dynamic and diverse state in the nation, California, the most populous state. Um, and so I think having that understanding and being able to communicate with those constituencies about the issues that they care about, she's gonna be able to, provided given COVID if she can, you know, crisscross the country and go into some of these states and make a very forceful case for the ticket for Joe and for her. Um, so, you know, conventional wisdom would say, go with somebody from a swing state because, you know, like Trump, for example, brought in Mike Pence from Indiana, a state that, that Barack Obama won in 2008, you know, go get the governor from the swingy, you know, state. I mean, Indiana wasn't very swingy in 2016, but go get that uh, from historically a swing state uh, and help lock it in. And I get that argument, but I think there's other factors at play. We also need to be in a position where we get, uh, you know, our turnout among African-Americans in particular uh, to where we had them in 2008 with Barack Obama on the ticket. And I think having uh, someone like Kamala Harris, who's such a rising star in the party and such a political force, um, I definitely do think would generate that enthusiasm that we as a party need uh, come November. Well, I don't know if it's going to be her, but I, but I think you made a lot of great points. And to me, ultimately, when I'm imagining Biden making this pick at the end of the day, and, and I'll just be blunt, at, at his age with the potential that he doesn't run for re-election, I hope the decision comes down to who he thinks would be the best president. And if that's the question, I think Kamala is the VP pick. I think she's the most ready for it of the, of the people who are being discussed on the short list and, and has the record to prove it. So... I am going to put you on the spot one last time. How do you rate the odds of Biden winning at this point in the race? With all the normal provisos, with the, the world can change, where are we? I mean, look, if you, um, and I'm a cynic, right? Because I want all those caveats of like. <laughs> me too, me too. You, can have all, you can have all the caveats you want. Yeah. I mean, like, look, if you're objectively looking at polling, um, you know, it's probably, I mean, short of the, the Russians and the Chinese and, you know, again, other caveats, like, you know, it's probably like 65, 35. Like, I feel really good about it, right? Um, 
Um, I'd rather be Biden than I'd be Trump. Um, but it's too early to tell, to be honest with you. It's too early to tell. Great. Well, we covered a lot of ground, Dave. We talked about the House, talked about a bunch of these really interesting Senate races in the presidential race. We'd love to have you back closer to the election uh, and maybe after the election to, to talk about how some of this stuff came out. But thanks for the whirlwind tour of American politics. Thanks for everything you're doing in the important races that you're working on. And just a pleasure to have you on the show. Likewise, Brian. Thanks so much for the opportunity and happy to come back on. Really enjoyed it. Great. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to Nation State of Play. Our producers are Hannah Miller and Jacqueline Artiaga. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. For more information, click through the link on your podcast app to our homepage.